The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. Do you remember the Jim Belushi movie, Animal House? 1978? Maybe for those of you who the answer is yes, you might wish that the answer was no. This budget film about college life in the Greek system was not necessarily a high watermark of modern cinematography, but it certainly became a cult favorite. And its tongue-and-cheek portrayal of the partying side of Greek life resonated with a generation, resulting, I might add, in a lot of toga parties, something that we also might want to put behind us. Well, eight years following its release, my brother pledged a fraternity. Now, the pledge process, for those of you who may not be familiar, involves visiting various fraternities and being invited to social activities to sort of check out the folks that you would be spending your next four years with. So over the summer, my brother did that, and the choice came down to two houses for him. One had a number of members who were Christians. As a matter of fact, this particular fraternity was known for having the most Christians of all the fraternities at the University of Washington. The other had, to his knowledge, no other Christian. This is the one he chose. Now, you may think he might have chose this so that he might have his own animal house experience, but actually it was quite the opposite for him. It was a very intentional choice for a young 18-year-old gentleman. He chose it because he wanted to live in that house, and it was his hope that he could witness to the Christian faith in the time that he spent there. And so faithfully, every Thursday night, his door was open for anyone who wanted to come in and study God's word with him. And in making that choice, he very quickly had to figure out how to live as a Christian with multiple allegiances around him, vying for his attention. Well, we've been on a quest together through the book of Revelation, looking at the messages to the seven churches. It was a message that was not only for that time, but is also for us in our current culture. UPC in Seattle. And today we arrive at Pergamum. Before we get into the text, I'll tell you a little bit about Pergamum. Pergamum is the capital city of the eastern province of the Roman Empire. And it was known for being well-educated. It had a sizable library. As a matter of fact, um, the word parchment derives from Pergamum because that's where it was invented. But more importantly, Pergamum was the eastern hub of imperial worship. It was the place that people went to worship the empire. Rome was the western hub, Pergamum was the eastern hub, and it had three temples alone dedicated just to emperor worship. It also had 
numerous temples to various other deities. They dotted the hillsides. And on the top of one of the terraced hills stood the largest one of all, a temple to Zeus with a huge throne. Uh, It was actually an altar, but it resembled a throne because it had 40-foot columns on either side. And all day long, they would burn animal sacrifices to Zeus. So that if you lived in Pergamum, you could smell that aroma of animal flesh burning. And for miles out, you could see this smoke coming up, proclaiming this following and allegiance to Zeus. So with much of the city's identity tied up in the worship of Caesar and other deities, you can imagine that this would be a very difficult church, for a very difficult place for the church to survive, let alone thrive. Multiple forms of paganism, multiple ways of being deceived. You'll see that it's called Satan's throne. And the church in Pergamum was suffering. It had compromised the culture. It had fallen prey to idolatry. And in his letter, Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, Be first and foremost my people. Put me first. Be distinct. Be my holy people. Holy God's people. What comes to mind when you think of the word holy? The word holiness. I don't know about you, but one of my first thoughts is that is not a description of me. And certainly not when I'm driving. Maybe you can relate. Holy is a word, and rightly so, that we reserve for God. But as we explore this text together, we will see how holiness, by God's decision, has been imprinted on us, imprinted on our lives. And so, as has been our tradition in reading texts from Revelation, I invite you now to take a Bible. If it's a pew Bible, turn to page 995 and stand as we hear God's And read together God's holy word. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. You, you are holding fast to my name. And you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Please be seated. Well, what's going on in Pergamum? We see that the people there, the church, is greatly praised, and yet they are also reprimanded. And the problem is some in the church in Pergamum have fallen prey to associating with other names than the name of Jesus. They've followed false teachers, and we'll come to this in a second. But let's start with what they get right. Jesus commends them for holding fast to his name. They haven't confessed Caesar as Lord. And Jesus also acknowledges that it is difficult to live in Pergamum. He calls it Satan's throne. And their emperor worship would be as commonplace as pledging allegiance to the flag is us here, is for us here. Most folks there were polytheists, and so not only by edict of the government, but the general population would have a tough time understanding why Christians would be hesitant to worship Caesar. And so the church of Pergamum is suffering distress and harassment because it is seeking to be a community that sets itself apart from this dominant aspect of worshiping multiple deities in the city that they live. But Jesus also corrects them. Some there have diluted their allegiance to Jesus Christ. They've waded into some muddy waters by making concessions. And a specific reference is made to the teachings of Balaam. Now, Balaam is a representation of the kind of trap that they have fallen into. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who is found uh, in Numbers 22 and 23. And in Revelation, he represents uh, a symbol of false teaching. And so the trap that they have fallen into is idolatry, the displacement of God. And there's also some specific practices mentioned in the text. It's pointed to eating food, sacrificed to idols, and practicing fornication. And these are symbolic of the church's unfaithfulness to God. Well, the story is an old story. God's people have compromised before. You may recall that the Israelites, after they had been brought out of Egypt, make a golden calf, an idol, and they worship it. And it seems that those in Pergamum have also fallen under some false teaching. And the result is a confusion of where their primary loyalty would lie. 
The Nicolaitans is also a group that's mentioned, and they are similar to the followers of Balaam, and perhaps actually maybe even a reference to the same group of folks. And they advocated a compromise between Christianity and the culture that they were in, thinking that you could combine the best of Christian practice with the best of the cultural practices and still have integrity in your faith. And Jesus didn't think that this was working for them. And so the Pergamemes are charged to repent from their lack of faithfulness. Their idol has been unmasked, and they are told to knock it down, to wake up, to turn around, and to reorient themselves with a primary identity in Jesus Christ and not travel any further down this slippery slope. What does the compromise at the church in Pergamum have to say to us? Well, it's very tempting to just simply conclude that we too must just identify common aspects of our culture, similar to Pergamum, and then stay clear of all of it and cling to Jesus. This is an attractive option. It's easier to see our world in black and white. But it also makes the assumption that Christianity can somehow stand outside of culture. And even if that were possible, even if we could take Christ and distill him to some pure form, stripped of all enculturation, we still would come to the we'd have that conclusion that uh, all culture is inherently bad and it's not nor is it all good and you and i and theologians and ethicists and christians throughout the ages have been asking this question how do we live in our culture and in particular there's, there's one very helpful com- contribution to this conversation made by Richard Niebuhr. Richard Niebuhr was arguably the 20th century's most notable Christian social ethicist. And in 1951, his book was published, Christ and, Christ and Culture. And it has not been out of print ever since. It's used as a beginning point, it's a starting point in universities and in seminary campuses in looking at how do we look at Christian engagement in culture. And he goes through and explores five ways as to how Christians might relate to culture. I'm not going to list all of them for you. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. One paradigm says that Christ is actually against culture, that there's an opposition between what is holy and what is profane. And the downside of this is that it could result in people being tempted to become complete separatists, to pull themselves completely out of culture, like I talked about earlier. Another paradigm he presents is that Christ transforms culture. And this is based on the idea that all of life is permeated by the intimate presence of Christ and that the believer is called to show forth Christ within culture. And then he has three other examples. And towards the end, Niebuhr concludes that we really can't land on one true approach. As a matter of fact, maybe we need a combination of many of them. 
And it seems that Jesus' concern with the Christian community at Pergamum isn't necessarily with culture, per se. But it comes down to ultimate allegiance. In what or in who will we place our faith? So how do we live in Seattle and belong to God? What does it look like to be faithful to God in the midst of our culture? And there's many wonderful things about the Northwest that we all can affirm are good. And God indeed wants us to enjoy the good things around us. I love the Pemco insurance ads about Washingtonians. The advertisements sort of make, well, they they poke fun at and they sort of make a hyperbole of some of these good things that characterize us. You've probably seen them on TV or on the sides of buses, on the radio. They're pretty funny. There's a number of profiles that they present, and I'll name some of them. And see if you find yourself, maybe even a little bit of yourself, in any of these. Profile number 17, obsessive compulsive recycler. Profile number 64, Green Lake Power Walker. Number 78, gluten-free, no-refined sugar lady. Number 36, I don't find myself in this one, accidental tech millionaire. (laughs) Kind of wish I did. Number 60, blue tarp campers. Number 75, public broadcasting pledge drive volunteer. And number 45, which causes me to grin a bit, 50 degrees shirts off guy. (laughs) Well, let me give you an even broader list of laudable things and attributes. And which of them... For you, perhaps, are in your life and and maybe are weighed a little more heavily than they should be. Nature, wealth, recreational gear, greenness, your job, your home, social justice, family, Fitness, achievement, beauty. Or another way might be to look at it this way. What God, and I mean God with a little g, would be most likely to displace your life in Christ? Where or where do you find things that you're tempted to put at the center of your life? The lines are difficult to draw with respect to our allegiances. We're pretty close to them, and we aren't given a litmus test to determine where we're off track. And that would sure be handy if we could take all of who we are and all our allegiances, all of our life, and sort of condense it down to a liquid that we could put in a beaker. And then given a piece of litmus paper, paper, we could dip it in, pull it out, and say, ah, blue, doing great. Or red, uh uh-oh. Little too much compromise for you. Better try again. We are called to have a critical eye to culture because God knows that our word, world, and our culture and the fabric of life is woven with a lot of beautiful threads 
a lot of colors, a lot of texture. But sometimes we tend to anchor or tether ourselves to them. And so like the church in Pergamum, God gives us guidance to help us loosen the ties, to identify the snags, to take a step back and look at the overall pattern of our lives that we are weaving. And there is something in us, the Holy Spirit within us, that knows when we have tethered ourselves to something other than the true God. Because we become disoriented when we're out of relationship with our creator. Adrift and we lose a sense of self. We've gone to the wrong source for significance. And that's what we heard this morning in our call to confession. When we trade living water for cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. And so they run dry eventually. They can't hold who we are. They're bereft of meaning. And in the midst of this crisis of identity and meaning, Jesus tells the church in Pergamum who they are. And he brings them a life-giving word. Even though they have compromised, God has never forgotten their true name. What is it? Holy. God reminds them that they are set apart. That's what holy means. And that's what God did when he first made a covenant with Israel in the wilderness. As they fled Egypt, he set them apart and he made them his own people. And so his word to Pergamum in this wilderness that they live in, this wilderness of deities, God again calls them his own and sets them apart. And thus he steers them away from that dark, dead-end idolatry and into light and life. He reminds them that they have a family name. And God's word of hope is even present in the harsh word of rebuke when he calls them to repent. Because we know our God is a jealous God. He wants our allegiance. And so Jesus says, smash the idols. Be set apart for me where you live. Stand firm. Hold your ground. And in this, God calls them to be reoriented in Jesus Christ and in the gospel and let all they do and all the decisions they make and all they engage in be shaped and guided by Christ. And then it's a curious thing. The text tells us that God gives those who conquer, those who are faithful, two gifts. One of my favorite parts of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is when Father Christmas shows up. He shows up as the power of the white witch starts to fade. And he brings gifts for the children. And these are unusual gifts, not your typical Santa Claus gifts. They're gifts for the journey. They're beautiful and they're practical. And they're substantial. And the same is true of the gifts that Jesus promises the church in Pergamum. One is a white stone on which is written a new name that no one knows except those who receive it. 
To the Christians in Pergamum, the stone symbolizes that they belong to God. You are mine. I've called you by name. You are holy. And I give a new name to everyone who holds to my name, not these other names. Now, a white stone actually would have been a familiar symbol to those in that time. White amulets were used um, in legal trials to declare innocence, academic grading, athletic games. But they were also a symbol of healing. A white stone was given to those with a serious illness, with a new name on it, after they became well. Pergamum who had drifted from Christ, could experience healing and wholeness. So the name signals not only belonging, but it also signals transformation. Have you felt a drift before? Do you feel it now? Jesus offers us, all of us, a white stone. A white stone with a new name on it. Here, take it. That white stone is for all of us. It signifies that we are called to wholeness and transformation in Jesus Christ. That we indeed each have a new name. And that we, when facing all the various things we want to be allegiant to, can be guided by that name and remember who we are even in the midst of tough circumstances. And Jesus also has a second gift for them. Manna. Bread. Hey, Bob. (laughs) Nice catch. And he calls us to take hold of that. And it's reminiscent of the manna that, that God provided for Israel in the wilderness, escaping from Egypt. And God promises us as well that he'll provide for us and sustain us as we face difficult circumstances. The message is that God is so concerned about our welfare that he will come alongside us and provide for even our most fundamental needs. Do you believe it? In a time when our nation has seldom been in more jeopardy, where the temptation is to tend to grasp after and hold to the things that were our security. Bread that goes away. We're called to hold fast to the bread of life and let Jesus sustain us. And the good news about these gifts is that they, in turn, bless the city through us. We can share our gifts with others. The white stone that signifies wholeness and transformation and relationship with the creator who knows our names. Lasting bread that nourishes souls. And so Jesus' message is clear. To whom or to what do you belong? We belong to me. Will you be called a friend of God? Maybe you're in a place where you need to reclaim your anchor of belonging. 
perhaps you've been a bit off balance. There's a weight on you of something or someone or some belief that you want to be free of. And you can. You're called to be. Because Jesus calls us to live into our true names, and they are greater than any other name this world can give us. And these are our names. Beloved, holy, child of God. Gracious God, we are thankful that you indeed have claimed us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and given us a new name that calls us to wholeness, to transformation, to relationship with you. And that you feed us, whether we are in a time of plenty and joy or in sorrow and in the wilderness. And so, Lord, as a people set apart for you, help us to live as your holy nation, offering the gifts we have to others around us, to this world. And may it be for your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.